have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. I want you to read along with me tonight because this chapter especially uh, invokes a lot of imagery and it requires uh, some imagination, I suppose, as the way Isaiah prophesies concerning his people. In Isaiah 59, in verse 20, we saw that Isaiah ended with this declaration that a Redeemer was going to come to Zion. And Zion represents, as the end of verse 20 describes, those who turn from transgression. People who desire to be set free from their sins, a Redeemer is going to come for them. A Redeemer will come who will answer that desire and set people free from their sins. Verse 21, then describing a covenant that's going to be made with Him and with those people, that God's Spirit would be with them and on their lips as they would enjoy this relationship with God. And Isaiah chapter 60 then goes on to describe what the people of God are supposed to look like. This is the ideal Zion. And so as we read these images, I want you to think about how God is describing us and how God is looking at what His people are supposed to be, uh, what they are supposed to look like. And as we read those ideas, then we can be thinking to ourselves, How are we measuring up with that? Do we look like what God desires, what His true people would be? So, with each image, then, we're going to notice, I think, some great pictures. As I've mentioned to you many times, I find it difficult to deal with imagery as I'm not that kind of brained person. I am not creative in the slightest. I'm an accountant by trade, and things are very straightforward to me. So uh, you might see the imagery even better than I'm able to to see them. And so uh, we'll break these into four different pieces, and we'll see these beautiful images described by Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 60, and we'll begin with the first three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So he begins with a very beautiful image, and it is really words of hope. As he opens up the words, arise, shine, for your light has come. Now remember Isaiah 59, you can even turn back and look at it. Remember verses 9 and 10 describe our sinful condition. We are in the darkness, we are blind, we are groping through the darkness, and we are in hope of light, but there is none. And remember, there is God describing the people saying, Your salvation and your hope is not with you. You cannot find your own light. You do not have hope within yourself. Therefore, we stumble in the darkness. We are as blind people and we need somebody to show us the way. Chapter 60 then opens with hope. Arise and shine. Now the light is going to shine. And that's not going to come from us. It's going to come from God. He is going to shine upon us and the darkness is going to to lift and and notice that 
verse 1 describes it as the glory of the Lord that is risen upon us. It is the glory of the Lord that is shining. Verse 2 gives it a a stronger image. In verse 2 he says in the middle, the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. It is the Lord who is arising. So when he says arise and, and shine, it is going to be God himself who is shining as the light for us. Now, what makes this really great is how the New Testament dealt with that and made this beautiful image in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 7, where I think this is truly the application of what Isaiah was prophesying. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this quotation at the end seems to be borrowed from Isaiah 60, where he says, It is Christ that is shining on you. So wake up. Arise, come out of the darkness, come into the light because the Lord has come. And the arrival of the Lord is the arrival of Jesus. When Christ arrives, now the light is shining, which makes an awful lot of sense since Jesus went around saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one you're supposed to pay attention to. I'm the one showing you the way. And so here is Paul saying that very same thing is that as Christ has shining his light and notice all the implications that Paul gives to that image. Therefore, you are in darkness. So now you're supposed to walk as children of light. Don't take part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose those works. It is shameful to even speak of those things. And we are to be the ones exposed the darkness. And this is the very idea that Isaiah is describing, is there is darkness and blackness, but Christ has come and he is shining and therefore we are to awake, we are to arise and we are to shine. Think about how beautiful that is after chapter 59, where we read some pretty demoralizing words that no one does good, no one does right, all are wicked, no one is able to do the things of God, all have turned aside. All of this imagery throughout chapter 59 describing our very sinful condition, so much so that he spent the second half with the people confessing those sins. You're right, we grope in the darkness and we have no hope and we need your salvation. And God is answering that and saying, your Redeemer will come and you will arise, you will awake, you will see it's going to change everything. That is what the chapter 60 is going to do, is we're going to spend our our time tonight observing these descriptions of restoration, revival and transformation. 
And the reason why there is restoration for God's people and a revival for God's people and a transformation for God's people is because Christ has come, the light is shining, and that's supposed to change everything about who we are and how we live. So that's what we'll look at then over these following verses as these first three verses set the stage and set the picture for us of what God is doing as we now reflect the light of God. In fact, you see at the end of verse 3, Nations shall come to your light. And so here is Christ shining and we are supposed to be reflecting that glory, shining as lights in the world, bringing people to the Lord. Let's notice now verses four through nine, because this is an image of restoration. And as we read again, picture the imagery. It's not literally saying all these things, but there's an image that's coming to mind and you'll see this restoring that's going to happen. So Isaiah 60 verse four. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you and young camels from Midian and Ephah and those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. All right, beautiful imagery here as he describes the nations now are coming to Zion and notice all the things that the nations are bringing. You see them. They're bringing in the abundance of the sea, the wealth of the nations. Verse five, multitudes of camels. Verse six, wealth in verse six, gold and frankincense. All of this imagery of they're bringing in the wealth. They're bringing in all these possessions. They're bringing in all of these different items to you. Now, why would that be such a, a vivid image. Well, think about what Isaiah has been describing is happening to them and what's about to happen to them as the Babylonians are going to come against them. Remember, the first half of the book of Isaiah is God telling them, because of your sins, you're going off to captivity and they're going to take everything. Remember, Hezekiah allowed these Babylonian envoys come on in and see the treasures of his house, see the treasures of the temple. And God told them and said, it's all going. It's all out. It's all leaving. It's all done. And so here is this this image of restoration that is happening is that instead of the nations coming to you and attacking you, instead of the nations coming and destroying, instead of the nations coming and taking everything that you have, instead of them coming and stripping your wealth, now they're going to come and they're going to be giving to you. 
And it's not going to be that they're bringing in actual gold or actual camels or actual things like that. But it's using that image of how you've lost everything because of your sins. And a nation has come in by the power of God to take away everything and strip you of your privileges and strip you of your blessings and strip you of your relationship. That's all going to be restored. Now the nations are going to come and they're not going to harm you. And they're not going to take from you. They're actually going to give to you. They're going to present these things to you. In fact, I think you see at the end of verse 6, a great image of what they're bringing. And they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This is what all of this imagery summarizes to be. They are coming in and they are desirous of God. They are coming in and they are speaking the desires of God. They want to belong to you. They want to be with you. They want to worship God. They are bringing the good news. They are proclaiming praises as they come now, as they want to belong to God and belong to his people. And so here is Isaiah looking down to the days of Christ as the first three verses set up for us, the days when the light is shining and when the light shines when Christ comes nations are going to enter nations are going to come they're going to belong to this and they're going to enjoy belonging as God's people and enjoy relationship with God rather than coming against his people and destroying they're going to come and they're going to join themselves to him and then the imagery goes a little further notice at the end of verse 7 where he says they shall come up with acceptance on my altar there's a great picture Great image here. I'm going to accept their sacrifices. I'm going to accept their offerings. Isaiah has already described that God's not accepting those things. We saw their sinful ways earlier, that God would have nothing to do with their sacrifices anymore. Remember, they're crying out, why doesn't God accept our sacrifices? Why doesn't he hear our prayers? Why doesn't he hear our fast? God says, because you're doing it selfishly. That was our chapter 58 practical atheist lesson. You look like you care about God, but you don't. And so your offerings are rejected, but there will be a time. When you will bring your offerings and you will bring your sacrifices and God will accept them. And the end of verse seven, and I will beautify my beautiful house. That's kind of interesting way to say it. It's already beautiful and God's going to beautify it, right? You kind of think about if you have to beautify something, it's not in good shape. He says, no, I've got this beautiful house and I'm going to beautify it. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he describes it further in in verse nine. He says there at the very end of verse 9, because he has made you beautiful. Zion is the people of God. The house is the people of God. And God says, my people are beautiful because I make them beautiful. Now again, this is a jarring image. If there was any way to preach chapter 59 and chapter 60 all at once and have kept you here for two hours, instead of just one when I did chapter 59... They've been good to do because you can see this connection in chapter 59. Remember, they're full of sins. They're ugly. They're not beautiful. The people of God are not beautiful at all. They are full of sins. They are corrupt. They are wicked. Their tongues speak evil. Their throats are an empty grave. It's all that you see the Apostle Paul quoting in Romans chapter three. They're full of sins. And God says, but I'm going to make them beautiful. I'm going to accept their offerings. 
Even though they're sinful, even though they're a mess, I'm going to change that. The light is going to come and they're going to change their ways and I'm going to make them beautiful and I will make them acceptable before me. And I think then you have to ask the question, well, how, right? I mean, this is an amazing change. This is amazing restoration that is occurring, that the people of God are now accepted and now beautified by God and all of the offerings are received by God. How is that going to happen? I think verse 9 gives one of the many pictures that we'll see in this chapter. Notice the beginning of verse 9. He says, that the coastlands shall hope for me. When you read about the coastlands and the islands, you're talking about the Gentiles, the far reaches. And he says, my people are going to be beautified. I'm going to make them beautiful and I'm going to accept their offerings because there's going to be a dramatic change within them. He says, the peoples are going to hope for me. That's going to be their hope. That's going to be their desire. God now is going to be their desire. God now is going to be our hope. And that is, I think, then the image that Isaiah gives to us. Here are the people of God. They are full of sins. We cannot beautify ourselves. We are filthy in our sins. But Christ is going to come. The light is going to shine. He is going to make us beautiful. He will cleanse us of our sins. And that will change our desire away. Away from the filth of the world, away from living for self so that we have our hope in God alone. And Isaiah is looking out way down the road and saying it's going to be a glorious day when Christ comes. It's going to change the hearts of people. It's going to change their desires. It's going to change everything so that their hope will now belong to me. We have spent a lot of time in Isaiah observing I had to go back and count it how many times Isaiah is describing the change of heart or change of desire or change of hope that will happen in his people since chapter 40 on. He keeps describing, I'm going to have a new people and they're going to want to be with me and they're going to desire me and they're not going to be interested in these other things anymore. They're going to have their heart's desire complete for me. And here is that image again. Here are the peoples. They shall hope for me. And that is how we're made beautiful. In fact, I believe this is exactly the concept that the Apostle Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 when he says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. We saw in John chapter 1, the very beginning of that gospel, when you see Jesus, you see God. When you see Jesus, you are seeing the glory of God. The light is shining. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, when you look at Him, when you see His light, when you behold the glory of God, there is a transformation that is going on. There is supposed to be a change of heart, a change of desire, a change of hope. It's supposed to change us as we look at Him and we consider him and we study him it will change everything about who we are and why we're here the grace of god the mercy of god the forgiveness of god the salvation of our god the redemption of our god is supposed to change us inside out it's supposed to cause us to want to move away from a life of sin 
to desiring our God above all else. It's a beautiful picture of how God changes the hearts of people so that our hope is no longer in our careers or in our spouses or families or children or jobs or possessions or wealth or parents or objects or any other thing. Our hope is in God alone. God does something so radical, so amazing by redeeming us through Christ that it will cause people to put their hope in God and break the chains of sin. And that leads to the next image. The next image is a reversal image. We've seen restoration. Now notice reversal. Verse 10 of Isaiah 60. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night that shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, and their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom... For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy for the from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Massive Reversal is seen in these images now. Reversal is the concept. And here is the idea that the nations are not coming to destroy. And we saw before they weren't coming to destroy, but they were bringing the wealth instead of taking it out. This time, notice verse 10. What are they coming to do now? He says, they're going to come and build your walls and they're going to serve you and they're going to minister to you and the gates are going to be open. You're not going to have anything to fear. It is a picture of this glorious kingdom that will exist when Christ comes. A beautiful picture. They will come to you and they will bring in their wealth and they will serve you and they will work for you and they will build up your walls. And this is again not a picture of the physical city. Some have tried to see this to be when Nehemiah returned in 445 B.C., but that's not what happened. The foreigners did not build the walls. The Persians let them go, but the Persians did not build those walls. That is not the picture at all. This is looking forward in our context to a time when Christ comes, when the light shines. And then verses 10 through 12 do not allow for a physical city because of the description, day and night these doors are never going to be shut and the wealth of the nations is going to pour in and all the nations that do not serve you will perish. This is not the physical city. This is not the physical nation. This is not the physical kingdom. This is looking forward to God's glorious kingdom, the spiritual people of God, this Zion. And so the imagery is of reversal. The fortunes of the people are now being reversed. You had judgment against you, but now you are going to have salvation. You were condemned in your sins, 
But God is going to redeem you of those sins. Your blessings and your fortunes were stripped away from you, but now I'm going to pour those things back upon you. You see that reversal quite strongly in verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. Reversal. The middle of verse 14. All who despise you shall bow down at your feet. Reversal. God is reversing the fortunes. He is reversing sin. He is reversing judgment. And that's how it kicked off at the beginning of verse 10. Look at that. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Reversal. Because of your sins, judgment has come, but I'm going to reverse your fortunes. I'm going to reverse your blessings. I'm going to reverse the outcome so that you can be my favored people. Verse 12 is just amazing. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Friends, we've got to keep that image in mind. God lays it out very clear. Serve God or perish. That's how we just said it right there. You're either with Him and you are following Him and you're serving Him and you are giving your life to Him and you're receiving the blessings that come from that or there is a day of doom, a day of judgment, a reversal that's going to take place to those who think that they are fine but they are not. And it is a picture of hope because this was a statement to say your enemies, those who stand against you, God is going to deal with them. And that had a very physical concept to Israel at that time. Yeah, you got to get the Babylonians. They, they've judged us and that would come. But this is Isaiah 60. He's looking out way beyond that. He's looking to his Zion, his glorious people. And he says, you are either with me or you are against me. And if you are an enemy of my people, then you are an enemy of mine. And I am going to cause judgment to come. And it is then a serious decision on our part and a concept that always that must be remembered is that if we are against God and we are against his people that there will be a judgment and that our hope as being the people of God is that ultimate justice will come from the hand of God and here even the prophet Isaiah is looking forward to that hope it is a image that's touched on here that will come back again that is touched on in Revelation the same idea of those who stand against you they will be judged that God will definitely deal with them in verses 15 and 16 describing the provision of God the beautiful imagery of how he will take care of you verse 15 I will make you majestic forever You shall suck the milk of the nations, nursed at the breast of kings. I am here for you. I am caring for you. I am your provider. I am your redeemer. Put your hope in me. Change your desire to be toward me. Belong to me. And I will deal with your enemies. I will deal with those who persecute you. And I will give you the blessings that God has promised to those who belong to Him. And so it's a beautiful image of why we hope in God. Why we put our trust in Him. As God says, I will bring justice. I will deal with the wrongdoer. I will deal with your enemies. Is a challenge on our part but what Romans 12 reminds us of this is why we do not return evil for evil this is why we do not retaliate this is why we see the example of Christ who does not respond even when he is attacked as we looked at this morning because he entrusts himself to the God who judges justly 
And here is Isaiah describing his people and saying, my people do that as well. That my people will put their hope in me because God offers far more than anything this world has to offer. Now we're going to look at verse 17 to the end of the chapter, from verse 17 to verse 22. And what we're going to see now is transformation. We've seen restoration, we've seen this revival and return, and now we're going to see a beautiful picture of transformation of God's people. Verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver, instead of wood, Bronze instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall be shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. Final picture of the people of God, completely transformed. And you begin with this imagery instead of bronze, gold, instead of iron, silver, instead of stones, iron. This massive transformation is going to happen. His people will be radically different. A huge transformation. We saw that earlier. I'm going to beautify my people. I'm going to beautify my house. And the image, I think, comes to it most strongly in verse 18 when he says, You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. This is a new identity that is found for the people of God. This is who you are. You are now saved. That's your identity. If there's any way I can like try to find your reverse button of the first chapter of Ephesians 1, where here I, the Apostle Paul spoke of our identity in Christ. That you are redeemed, that you are saved, that you are chosen, that you are adopted, that you are predestined. He went through all of those images describing this is who you are. And here is Isaiah doing the same thing. You're not the sinful people anymore. I have changed your identity. Now you are salvation and you spend your days in praise to God. And so we are saved. And we are people then who praise God continually. Do verses 19 and 20 sound familiar? (laughs) Very strong imagery that is found in the book of Revelation chapter 21 that we'll look at in just a minute. But consider what he says in the context of Isaiah before we think about the book of Revelation. The sun was not going to be your light by day anymore. And the moon's not going to be your brightness anymore because God is going to be your everlasting light. And you think about that image just for a minute. The day and the night control everything that we do. 
It governs everything. We operate our whole lives centered around light and darkness, day and night. That's how everything operates. That's how everything moves. And here is an amazing picture because he's coming to them and saying, my people are not going to be governed by those factors anymore. They're not going to be governed by those things. Instead, he uses the statement in verse 19, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Verse 20, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Here is the statement that your God is now what causes everything in your life. That's what causes you to have everything in your life revolve. It's not about... Well, what am I going to do tomorrow? Let's see, I think I'll go to McDonald's and all that. That's not what your life consists of. Your life is now God. That's your light. Light is not about, well, my physical world and my physical life, and I'm going to do this today and do that. He's describing a whole new image where God rules our lives, where God controls us, where God gives us our direction. Now we have a a new thing that now is in control of us, that we're not moved by this world, we're moved by God as our light, that He is everything to us. And this then again drives home and brings almost full circle the idea of Jesus being the light is He controls everything. He governs everything. Our lives are ruled by the fact that He is the light. And we do what He says. We follow where He goes because He's light. No longer is it sun and moon. No longer is it day and night. It's whatever the light of God shows for us. That's what we do. That's what governs our lives. That's where we go. That's what we follow. And that's just such a beautiful image that Revelation 21 gives us, beginning in verse 22. Same image. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it and its gates shall never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice the same imagery there. The nations will walk by the light of the Lord. This will be what controls them. This is what rules their life. And here is Isaiah and here is the Apostle John using these images to show a beautiful picture of what it means for the Lord to be our light, that the Lamb is our lamp, that He controls our life. It is a whole new life, a whole new way of living, a whole new way of thinking, all new desires, completely transformed life because Jesus is the light that is shining and He is the direction that we follow. 
I had 30 more minutes of your time. We'd go talking about then. We're not going to follow the light of the world and all the directions of the world and the false ways of the world and the foolish things that the world tells us is right and good and what we're supposed to do. Jesus is the only light. He is the only direction. He is who we must follow. But there's so much more I want to see in the time that we have. There's so much more to look at. How about the end of verse 19? This statement is staggering. It's the title of the lesson. This is another way to describe our identity. We noticed one of them, your hope is in God. That That's it. The coastland shall hope for me. That's what people of God look like. Their hope is in nothing else but God. The end of verse 19, your God will be your glory. That's who we are. God is our glory, nothing else. And I submit to you, this is humanity's problem. This is our problem, is that we are glory thieves. We draw glory to ourselves. We desire to have pride and glory, and these things are problems for us all the time. I submit to you, it is probably the deepest of sins that we must fight, is that we desire our own pride, our own wants, our own ways, and all of that is is pride and glory for ourselves. Consider how early on that happened. In the very beginning, as we come to the Garden of Eden, what is the sin in the Garden of Eden? We might default into, well, they ate of the fruit of the tree. Yes, on a surface level, that is the sin. But what's the root of the problem? The root of the problem is that they're only concerned about their ways and what they want to do rather than God's ways and what God God told them to do. It is the problem of pride. Our way is the right way. Our way is the better way. And so we glorify our thinking and our decisions and our lives. We come to the Tower of Babel. Why is there a problem at the Tower of Babel? Pride and glory are the problems again. They desire, we will make a name for ourselves. We will build something very large so that everybody will glorify us and we'll have a very lasting name and legacy. We have a world that is very bent upon leaving a legacy, making a name, glorifying ourselves, elevating ourselves. It is the problem of sin from the very beginning. We even come to the days of Moses. And we would be, I think, completely crazy to think that Moses never sinned in all of his life. But when he came to the moment when he was supposed to speak to the rock rather than strike the rock, that's the first time he'd ever sinned and God said you could not go into the promised land. I sincerely doubt it. Why was that sin the sin that said to Moses, you cannot enter? God gave the explanation. Because you took glory to yourself rather than giving it to God. Our problem is we are glory thieves. And here is Isaiah saying, you know what his people are? His people are those who take their pride and joy and glory in God. We take pride in all the wrong things. 
We're supposed to have our boast and our glory and our pride in God alone. Too often we glory in worldly things and temporary things and physical things and we fail to glorify God. And here is the picture that God says, my people will glorify and boast in one thing. They will boast in God alone. The Apostle Paul said that a number of times. 1 Corinthians one thirty one is one of them where he just said, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. That's a challenge. It's caused me to think about how I say things, about, you know, I'm proud of something or another to recognize there's one thing I should really be glorying in, and it's certainly not in myself or in my actions or in my achievements or something that I think I've accomplished. But the people of God glory in God alone. That is their sole joy. And in all the accomplishments that the Apostle Paul had, He never steps back and says, well, let me glorify myself or take pride in my achievements. He says that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And when he would ever name his achievements, he said, I count those things as trash. But those things are not of value. Because all that matters is that God receives the glory. In fact, you notice that very image as he describes the beauty of verse 20 and 21. Look at the very last line of verse 21. Why is all this happening? Why is God doing all this? Why is he transforming and restoring his people? Why is he taking awful sinners and making them glorious? End of verse 21. God's words that I might be glorified. That's what it all boils down to in this world. Is that we would glorify God in our words and our actions. All of this was done for us. Not that we would glorify ourselves or boast in ourselves. But that God would be glorified in our actions and in our words. And through our salvation that we reflect the light of God. Another beautiful image in verse 21. Look at that. This this is just staggering. Verse 21, your people shall all be righteous. In Isaiah 59, he said, all people are not righteous. No one is righteous. No one does good. No one does what is acceptable before God. But then Christ comes. The light shines in the darkness. And people who desire to be set free from their sins turn to the light. And God is able to say to people who are full of sins, who are wicked and ungodly and undeserving of any goodness from God at all, who are worthy of every ounce of God's wrath, God is able to turn to those people and say they are righteous. And that is the amazing, staggering grace of God. That God can take sinful people like us who do not deserve any kind of relationship with him and call us righteous, to call us his people, to say that he will be our God. And will we find our glory and our boast and our hope and our desire in him alone? His love and His grace is to turn these dark, stony hearts into hearts that desire Him above all else. Pull your psalm books out. Let's sing invitation song.
And we invite you to awake, to arise and shine because the light of Jesus is shining for each of us. Jesus is our light that changes our ways and changes our lives, that he has reversed our fortunes. He has restored our hope. He's restored our relationship to God and is transforming lives and transforming hearts to those who will believe in him, who will turn away from their sins and who will love the Lord their God with all of their heart. Will you do that tonight? Will you turn away from your sins? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and enter that glorious relationship of being a child of God and being declared by God righteous, though we've been full of sin. Will you come while we stand and while we sing?